You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. This is the Christian Humanist Podcast, a weekly discussion of theology, philosophy, literature, art, and other things that human beings do well. And now your hosts, David Grubbs, Nathan Gilmore, and Michael Ford. Hi, and welcome to episode 171 of the Christian Humanist Podcast. I'm your host for today. My name is Michael Farmer, and I am back from the future in which I finish my book. <laughs> no, it's actually done, so I'm, I think I'm back for good now. Uh, joining me, as always, Nathan Gilmore from Emanuel College in Franklin Springs, Georgia. There we go. Nathan, how's it going? So does this mean that we're in the timeline where the book gets finished? It's it's ni- it's ni- it's 2015B, I think. <laughs> oh man, all right, all right. So I, I, I run I run uh, Michael's Pleasure Palace Casino. <laughs> well, I was about to say uh, because we got 2015B, we don't get hoverboards, but we do get your book. Yeah, and and my Pleasure Palace Casino, which the proceeds from my book are going to buy me <laughs> the, the millions of dollars I'm going to make from this thing. So, 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 so to answer the uh, question that you answered in the past, um, I'm doing all right. I am coming off of the worst fall break I've had in a long time. Both my oh. kids were sick, so I'm actually looking forward to getting back in the office where I'm not cleaning bathrooms. It, yeah. it really puts grading papers into perspective, doesn't it? Oh, I, I would have been grading papers if I had the choice. Also joining us, David Grubbs. Assistant Professor of English at Houston Baptist University in where else but Houston, Texas. David, was your, was your fall break the worst on record? It was not the worst on record. It was actually, uh, it was actually kind of fun. I spent, uh, my fall break is basically just uh, Friday uh, of, of right. this past week. Um, Did but, you have like an in-service on Thursday? Uh, no, we had classes Thursday. Oh. Um, I would so much rather go to classes than go to an in-service. <laughs> but but I was able to get some profiles interviews um, done on on Friday, so you know be looking for that, listeners. Yeah, so we have that to look forward to. We should also point out that the profiles episode that went up two days ago, because this is dropping on a Wednesday. It's dropping on Wednesday, October twenty first, for reasons that should be obvious if you look back <laughs> to the future. Um, the 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 episode that dropped two days ago is uh, our audio editor Britt Stack's first interview, and it's with Father James Martin. Oh, I think neat. known to viewers of the Colbert Report, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and probably yep. other people as well. <laughs> Almost certainly. <laughs> so uh, we'll dive in. Our, our topic today is the Back to the Future trilogy, and uh, you know we did uh, three episodes on Star Wars a few years ago, but Nathan and David wouldn't let me do three full episodes on Back <laughs> to the Future. That, so David, gonna... did he ever ask? Uh, I don't recall him asking the question, but I think <laughs> I didn't, I I didn't okay. need to ask the question. I knew because I because I know Michael can play the martyr. <laughs> oh yeah, this this from the person who said that uh, the the gay rights movement was one elaborate attack on Indiana. Okay, let's make a list of states that have been boycotted. I'll start Indiana. 
And the only reason <laughs> the only reason they're attacking Indiana is because that's where Nathan's from. But I'm the one who now, plays the murder. I don't believe I said that either. <laughs> you didn't need to say it. Yeah. <laughs> I heard it in your voice. <laughs> yeah. Who's your daddy? <laughs> anyway, uh, we're we're shoving all three of these movies into a single episode, so it may be very long. I don't know. Maybe as long as one of the movies. <laughs> I have talked about my love for these movies many times on this podcast. I'd like to start the episode, though, by asking you guys about your experiences with them. Uh, I think I have mentioned that I wrote fan fiction for this when I was 12 years old. I'll give more of my personal history in a minute. I'm sure you guys did not uh, write fan fiction, but did you see these movies when you were kids? And if so, did they spark your imaginations as they did mine? Nathan? Well, first of all, I did see the first one in the theater in 1985. Um, I, I never did see the second or third ones until this last week when we were prepping for this episode. I, I think honestly, more than any other reason, because the 1980s were the era of the endless sequels. Um, you know, think Freddy Krueger, think Jason Voorhees. Uh, and so it just didn't seem prudent to go back and watch sequels, I guess. But I did watch the original. I enjoyed it. Of course, it was one of, uh, what I think of as the three great time travel movies of the 1980s, starting with uh, Terry Gilliam's Time Bandits, and then Back to the Future, and then Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. Uh, so, so Nathan has mentioned the Bill and Ted franchise. <laughs> yeah, yes, indeed. <laughs> I, 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 I don't know what even to think about that pattern. But it was a, a, a time, uh, and again, I think of, of Back to the Future as a piece of this puzzle where the movies that I was watching had me thinking about the nature of time and the nature of time travel and so on and so forth. And although certainly I wasn't consciously preparing for a career in theology and philosophy and literature and, you know, other things human beings do well, (laughs) uh, I do think that the fact that I grew up in an era of great time travel movies sort of cleared the way for me to think about time as a metaphorical concept uh, and, you know, time travel in particular turns time into a geographic concept where you can travel forwards and backwards rather than a an existential reality that affects all of geographic space simultaneously. So, I mean, it, it, it's, it's interesting in that respect because it was definitely a part of my childhood, definitely a part of my conceptual history. Uh, but certainly I, I was not the fan that Michael Farmer was. Can any of us be good listeners? David, what do you got? <laughs> Well, I didn't grow up with these. Um, when they came out uh, when I was a kid, uh, they were rated PG and then PG-13, PG-13 respectively, if I remember correctly. Um, and at that particular point, I wasn't permitted to rate, to watch anything that, was, uh, that wasn't G. So these missed me when they came out, um, and I just never went back to uh, rectify the lack in my knowledge um, for whatever reason. Um, years later when I, when I met and then, you know, married my wife before that, she wasn't my wife. She was afterwards. Now it all makes sense. (laughs) (laughs) Um, when, uh, my my wife, uh, loved these movies and, uh, I was always incredibly reluctant to watch them. It actually became kind of a bone of contention in the early years of our marriage, uh, because I don't like movies with awkwardness and I don't like movies about high schoolers and all I knew about back to the future one is that it's a time travel movie that involves a high schooler traveling back in time to another high school and almost making out with his mom and 
the anticipation of that was crushing for me. <laughs> anyway, so I saw them for the first time over the past few days. Um, uh, I watched uh, the first one a couple days, uh, three days ago, second one two days ago, and the third one yesterday. So, nonetheless, they did have an effect on my childhood, um, even though I didn't watch them. Um, I'd seen trailers, I saw posters, I saw commercials, I saw the uh, the commercial tie-ins and so forth. And the main impression that I had was that Michael J. Fox was very, very cool. Skateboarding was very, very cool. And so I was playing the electric guitar. So that those were... <laughs> and, and, and cars with doors that go up are neat. Those... So all, it, all four of those it, things are still true, though. Yes, it's it's all four of those things are still true. And we can thank Michael J. Fox for all of them. Yes, thank you, Michael J. Fox. <laughs> so thank you. So yeah, that that was the impact on my childhood, even though I'd never watched them. What about you, Michael? Yeah, I um, I had these movies taped off of television, and I had the first and third ones taped off of network television, and the second one taped off of uh, HBO. And I actually saw the second one before I saw the first one. So go figure that out. <laughs> um, huh. Yeah. It was, and because of that, the second one um, is actually my favorite. Uh, I, I just love them. I, I, I must say that I, I was very confused by the reshot version of the... The last scene of the first movie is reshot as the second movie. But because I had the first one taped off of NBC or whatever, the language was different. He, he says uh, jerks instead of a-holes. <laughs> uh, you know, he actually says a, and but in the second one he says a holes, which is actually what he says in the first movie. It just wasn't dubbed for television. So I remember being very confused about why the second one was so much more prof- profane than the first one and the third one. And it all made sense. I have mentioned before, I think in our sci-fi episode 150 years ago, that uh, I, I didn't realize these movies were comedies. Uh, when I saw them, I was I don't know ten or eleven years old, and I just became absolutely obsessed with them. I had, I bought a a vest like Barty McFly wears. It wasn't orange; it was blue. Mm-hmm. I had a friend whose dad worked at a movie theater, and he got all sorts of like movie memorabilia, and he got me a Back to the Future Two T-shirt, which I wore, uh, to much uh, ridicule at my middle school. Uh, I just, I loved these movies, uh, and still do. My wife uh, loves them as much as I do, and once a year we watch the whole trilogy uh, straight through. So uh, I, I I feel kind of weird saying they're my favorite movies, because I don't, you know, it's not like they're intellectual movies. This is not Bergman we're talking about here. <laughs> uh, it's not even Coppola, but uh, I just love these movies. It is Zemeckis. Oh, yes. You want to go ahead and get your shot at Beowulf in, David? <laughs> Nothing else well, is proof that he can make a good movie. Yeah, yeah. One of the great things about these movies is that they aren't Beowulf. So, yes. you know. So we do have to yeah. credit Robert Zemeckis with that. We also <laughs> should talk very briefly about the movie he filmed at the same time as the second one, which is Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Oh, another, oh yeah. Another yeah. 80s classic starring Christopher Lloyd. And uh, fans of both movies will know that the tunnel that Marty goes through that Biff tries to kill him in is also the tunnel between Hollywood and Toontown in Mm. in Frame Roger Rabbit. I got completely obsessed with Christopher Lloyd. (laughs) I was obsessed with Michael J. Fox, too. I remember watching Life with Mikey, which is a terrible comeback film he made in, like, 1994. Did that lead you to hunt down the movie that Christopher Lloyd was in the year before Back to the Future? You're talking about Clue? 
I'm talking about I'm talking about Buckaroo Banzai across no, the. I, ne- I never saw Buckaroo Banzai. I'm afraid. Oh, in spite man, of the, it's been yeah years since I've seen that one. In spite of the fact that the people who produced Buckaroo Banzai also produced Back to the Future. No, I never saw it. I'm sorry. And and there are distinct Buckaroo Banzai allusions in Back to the Future. Well, I'll have to go watch it now. Yeah, I do, I do remember realizing one day that Judge Doom from Who Framed Roger Rabbit was Doc Brown. Mm-hmm. And also <laughs> Professor Plum from Clue. Mm-hmm. Which, maybe that movie deserves its own episode of this. I don't know. Which one, I, Blue I, or Roger Rabbit? Both of them, probably. <laughs> you know, I'm a big animation <laughs> fan. But uh, one one's a Mechus movie at a time. How about that? Or three, yes, please. Three at a time, anyway. <laughs> well, let's move on and, and go through these movies uh, before we get up to two hours uh, and not even talk about them. Uh, one of the criticisms of the, the second two movies in the trilogies is they lack this sense of existential urgency that drives the original film. And I, I, again, the second one's my favorite, so I'm not really sure I agree with that. Uh, but for now, Nathan, I'd like to hear your thoughts on what makes the original movie such a compelling story. Well, it's interesting. I When I read your show notes, I mean, there's definitely an urgency to the first of the three films, but I mean, I would call it the urgency of an action movie more than existential urgency. I'd say that there's more reflection on the nature of existence in the third than either the, either the first two. But in this first one, Marty McFly is propelled into the world of time travel because he is being chased by terrorists with machine guns. Uh, he has to correct things in the past uh, in order to save his own existence. Uh, and, of course, the cliffhanger scene that runs for 20 minutes. I never, <laughs> for some reason, I forgot how long the uh, will the lightning strike the clock at the right moment scene runs. Oh, it's so tense uh, the whole time, too. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'll, I'll, let, that stand. I'll let that stand. Yeah. <laughs> um, so one of the things about the first movie is that it is a really good action movie in a way, in a way that the second and third ones aren't. Uh, it's one of those movies that you really are on the edge of your seat. Uh, like I said, you know, I, I was a little bit less enchanted with the clock scene this go round. Uh, but the other thing about this story is that when Marty McFly is in the past he is certainly discovering things about the past and there are certainly things happening that he has to be a part of. Uh, but there's a much stronger sense there that his own existence in a very simple, straightforward way is going to end unless he does things by a certain hour on a certain night. Whereas with the second and third ones, they do a little bit more playing around with the idea of multiple timelines and multiple personality personalities. Well, multiple p- possibilities. There we go. Um, <laughs> But there's not that sense of, you know, his existence is going to end. Yeah, I mean, he's uh, literally fading out of existence in the third movie. Yeah, yeah. The last scene, of the, the last uh, third of that movie. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, David, I mean, when, you, when you hear existential urgency, is that what you think of when you think of the first one? Um, probably not, but, I'm, but existential urgency usually isn't on, you know, kind of like the front of my mind anyway. Okay. Um. You know, not not that I you know somehow managed to escape that sort of thing. I just don't think about it in those kinds of terms. <laughs> um, but I but I do get I, I do get the sense of um, it, it it's it's different kinds of stakes, right? It's not Marty McFly having to act in order to prevent his life from ending. 
it's having to act in order to prevent not only his life but the lives of his siblings from never having been. Yeah, which, yeah. which I, I would say is a pretty existential issue, wouldn't you? Oh yeah, I mean, I mean yes, but you know, I I, I don't usually think I, I I I think I think you go there more readily than I do. No <laughs> I have problem. to be I have to be. I, like... I, I guess I guess Michael, <laughs> the case that I would make like the for the war. existential urgency of two and three is that in those Marty is presented with versions of reality that differ so substantially from what he remembers that it is a replacement of existence rather than simply a nullification. So in my mind, that's even a little bit more compelling existentially than simple annihilation. Well, fair enough. Mm. But that said, I mean, like I said, that's what makes the first one a fun action movie in the way that two and three are less so. People, mm-hmm. people, I, I don't think have have spilled enough ink about how different those three movies are. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So maybe we'll maybe we'll talk more about that. They are they are very very different. Um, I mean, just other things. Back to the Future is compelling on. You know, you've got multiple characters with developing arcs for which you already know the stakes. The stakes don't have to be revealed. The stakes are what's at the beginning of the movie, and mm-hmm. the, you know, and that and that uh, that whole scenario doesn't happen unless a high school loser manages over the course of a couple of days to stop being a loser, right? Mm-hmm. Um. You know, it, 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 you know, puts you in the, in, in the, you know, incredibly awkward situation of, of having to deal with the fact that your adolescent mother is in love with adolescent you, you know, and it's, it's, there's just a lot of, it's, 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 it's higher stakes, right? It's like a high school Mm. movie with much, much, much higher stakes. (laughs) It's the, it's the same situations, bullies, you know, complications with romance will you or will you not stand up for yourself but the stakes are higher right and one thing i will say in praise of the first one is that uh and this is a virtue of necessity but that doesn't stop it from being a virtue is that the sometimes silly self self-referentiality of the sequels isn't present there <laughs> silly <laughs> Well, I never. That's right, farmer. Shots fired <laughs> across the bow. <laughs> the self-referentiality of the of the third movie, in particular, I think, is the best part of it. But there's no we'll accounting for taste, there. right? Well, I mean, you're just waiting, and you're like, okay, what, when is when is Tannen going to fall in crap, or crap fall on Tannen? One well, or the when you realize the horse salesman is the same family as the car salesman in the first movie. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. They're like, wow, these people literally never moved. Or Goldie and, Wilson the third. <laughs> and and also apparently the McFly family doesn't branch. Well yeah, there's the there's the issue of why on earth would Leah Thompson play Seamus's wife when the the Baines wouldn't be related to the McFlies. Yeah, except yeah, maybe I, they are. But, well, Bob, Bob, Bob Gelsner says there's something genetic in, in McFly men that make them prefer women who look like Leah Thompson. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and see, at that point, I have to make reference to another uh, time travel movie from slightly later than Back to the Future and say, just don't think about it too much. That includes yeah. you, audience. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's like the only person in the McFly lineage that doesn't look like Leah Thompson or Michael J. Fox is is his dad. 
Anyway. Well, he doesn't <laughs> even look like himself. <laughs> Dude. Well, we'll get into that. Or will we? I don't I don't, it's not part of our questions, but I can I can certainly talk at length about these movies. <laughs> um, David, part of the appeal of the first film um, is its skepticism towards certain narratives that most of us receive from their parents. And I believe that the Bobs, Bob Zemeckis and Bob Gale, who, who wrote the movies, have said that the skepticism is actually the impetus behind making the film in the first place. Huh. How does the movie undermine a certain style of parenting? And, and maybe more broadly, what relationship does it bear with nostalgia in general? Right. Well, the, in the opening, uh, the opening situation, Marty McFly is the youngest son of a pair of... Uh, Losers? Di- yeah, I was, I was going to say benignly neglectful. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, his dad is completely disengaged and a loser. Um, his mom, uh, is, you know, self-medicating with alcohol apparently. Um, but the, the, the main, the main bit of parenting that we get to see is his mom's sort of whiny concern about the fact that he's been dating this particular girl and because he thinks you know his his mom characterizes her as as too forward and and says mom we never did things like that when i was a kid i never called a boy or sat in a <laughs> parked car with a boy gasp right so uh, you know uh, marty mcfly is is led to the conclusion that that it's by some amazing miracle that his mother managed to conceive not one but three children <laughs> uh, given given her uh, apparent attitude in that moment towards you know things of that nature, um, which is why it's incredibly awkward when part of his plan, having gone back to 1955, involves um, making uh, you know young mom angry at him by making a move on her which she rejects which which is not in fact what happens it turns out his, that his mom is uh of a somewhat different character <laughs> than uh than than he had been led to believe by her adult self um she's uh, almost pathetically eager no not almost pathetically she is pathetically eager it's actually pathetic mm-hmm. uh, you know in in her pursuit of Calvin Klein, the boy who she determined that's his name by sticking out his underpants. Um, anyway, also drinking, also smoking, um, but you know, of course, of course, you know, grown. We know we know that Gromas, you know, taking shots of straight vodka from the bottle. So you know, I don't I don't know how much of don't drink kids she's she's giving her kids. She's certainly not modeling that. But anyway, um, the style of parenting at the beginning of the movie. Um, seems to be a, a, I, I guess a, the, the the style of parenting in which the parents pretend or claim a kind of perfection um, in childhood and in in adolescence that uh, they they want their children to to live up to, but that's uh, perhaps a lie, probably unrealistic. Um, so so simple honesty is is probably what's been going for there. 
so that kind of nostalgia of we would have never done things back then. We were more respectable back then. 1955 mm-hmm. doesn't come off great in this movie. Well, it doesn't, it doesn't. <laughs> in, in some ways it does. On the other hand, um, Biff Tannen is allowed to exist in 1955. Also 1985. Which, yeah, but 1985 Biff Tannen, well, is, is an adult. He's not a high school boy who's apparently a, allowed to engage in violence in public places with no repercussions whatsoever. It is also heavenly, heavily applied that he is a rapist. Um, mm. Yeah. A little bit more than implied. <laughs> um, yeah. He's, he's kind of a monster, actually. Um, anyway, the other bit of parenting that we get at the end of the movie, which I think we're supposed to be more optimistic about, is still very creepy to me. <laughs> um, at the end of the movie, his parents are different. His dad is no longer a loser, um, you know, having been persuaded to, you know, punch Biff Tannen in 1955, his character is completely changed by this one punch, apparently. Right. It's the Fight Club prequel. Ex- ex- yes, exactly. <laughs> um, uh, but the interesting thing is that now, um, Mrs. McFly has gone from being, um, awkwardly averse to you know, sex, to now, in my view, awkwardly stoked about the fact that her son is apparently going out for the big date. And I, I was just like, no, that's not a conversation I ever want to have with my mom. Yeah. You're going down to the lake, nudge, nudge. No, 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 no. Let's, ah. <laughs> let's not talk about that, mom. Um, but... I mean, do you guys get the impression that we're supposed to see this as the happy ending? Oh, yeah. Oh, no, absolutely. That, You're supposed that, to see like, mm-hmm. those, like, like, these are the parents you want. The parents are like, woo! They are at least not losers anymore. His his mom must be 50 pounds lighter. His his dad is self-confident and has published a, a book. I, I'm not <laughs> sure they're great parents, but they at least seem happier. Oh, I'm not, you know, uh, no, no, no debate there. It's just... And Biff is their personal slave. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it's that very Nietzschean element that honestly I'd forgotten in thirty years that, <laughs> that you know there there is no happy ending in which people coexist peacefully. Someone is going to be someone's slave. I'm sorry, <laughs> but... the, he has enough money to buy a velour jumpsuit. It's hard to feel too bad. For him. <laughs> That's true. Um, maybe they give him a, a uniform allowance, um, <laughs> but I, I I don't know. I don't know that I would hire the guy that that you know. Tried to rape but, your wife? Yeah, yeah. I they seem to be they seem to have gotten past that really well. He is. <laughs> I, I, we should point out. We know that he's not actually their personal slave. He runs an auto detailing business. But uh, try watching that movie without assuming that he's their personal slave. Yeah, it certainly exactly, reads that way. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, considering the fact that he always seems to be loitering in their garage. Like, is that where he sleeps? Does he does he have like a sleeping bag in the corner next to the lawnmower or something? It's it's weird. It's you know what gets weird. gets me is he's so excited to show Marty the uh, the matchbooks from his auto detailing business. There's something so sad about that. <laughs> yeah. But then again, oh, Biff is a jerk. Yeah, I know, but he's at the head. same time, 
is that the kind of justice that I wanted to see? <laughs> it's kind of justice I like to see. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> the the complete unmanning of of anyway. the high school bully. Yeah. 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 yeah I mean, it, it is. It's a it's a revenge fantasy. This is a universe with no forgiveness. My only yeah. regret is we don't actually see the scene where they castrate him. <laughs> that I'll, is, I'll, go, I'll, I'll go ahead and go on record to say that I'm glad they didn't film that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Nathan, do you, have, do you have anything to add about the the anti nostalgia of Back to the Future? Yeah, one thing that I'll note is that in the early going of the movie, which is to say the 1985 sequence, uh, one of the striking features of family life in the McFly home is that. Uh, Marty can not Marty. Pardon me. Uh, George can never look away from the TV. He's totally disengaged, as David said. And one of the reasons why he's always disengaged is that he never averts his attention from the television. Mm. And it's interesting because when you go back to 1955, uh, the implication is that the McFly family has just gotten their first television. And what they do with that television is to wheel it over to the kitchen table so that the father can watch TV while he eats supper. You've got the wrong family there. That's actually the Baineses. Son of a gun, you're right, you're right, you're right. But at any rate, it's 1985, 1955. Then when you return to 1985, what's striking is, at least that I saw, and Michael, you've obviously seen this more than I have, I didn't see a television in the McFly home in the alternate 1985 I can't remember if you see one or not, but they're certainly they're certainly not glued to it the way the way right, the right. are and the way the McFlys are. So it's right. interesting that that little bit of technological irony is going on there. That you know part of what makes the Baines and the McFlys so pathetic is that they are glued to a screen, and you know this only because you are yourself. And well, and you know George doesn't want to go to the dance because he'll miss his favorite TV show, science fiction. Theater. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. I forgot about that detail. Right. Yeah. Well, you know, the thing is, Loser George has a reality to escape from. Mm-hmm. Winner George is living it. He's Got that awesome. white sofa. <laughs> the height of success. You know, I've always wondered how they're so rich when he's just, his, fir- his first book has just arrived. So it's not like he's a famous author. Well, right. once, once again, I, I think that uh, plot continuity might not have been the uh, priority here. Yeah, probably also- not. Also, having become wealthy, he still lives in the same house. Yeah. Well, you you got to remember that's supposed to be the nice part of town. That's I, I forget I, I can't remember. Lion Estates is the second one, the the one that is yeah. nice in 1985 and crappy in 2015. Right. <laughs> I I I I'm going to make a case that this is a nostalgic movie um, in some ways because if you look at Hill Valley 1955, it's way nicer than Hill Valley 1985. That's true. Like like the town is just completely going to seed to the point where the way they filmed this was they filmed all the 1955 scenes and then just destroyed the town and filmed the 1985 scenes. Oh, fascinating. Okay. So, so there's, a, there's a sense in which I, I, I think they're actually arguing for some sort of cultural fall from 1955 to 1985. And then, interestingly enough, back up in 2015, at least in some ways. Mm-hmm. Right. Everything's cleaner. Yeah. I mean, you've still got rampaging gangs of bullies. Mm-hmm. Which no one seems to notice. It's it, weird. I'm just used it's, to it. No one in the Zemeckis universe notices violence. It's a revenge At, fantasy, in any, guys. In any era. <laughs> that this is not realistic fiction. <laughs> I know. 
<laughs> oh my goodness! I, it's like talking House of Cards with people. It's <laughs> oh, shut up, Nathan. <laughs> this this would never happen in Washington. I know. <laughs> <laughs> Just ride with it, man. I'm gonna go back in time and change reality so that you're my castrated slave. <laughs> Go back and punch you in high school. Did we just lose our family rating? (laughs) I think we might have. Well, let's move on to the second film. Uh, The the most famous scenes from the movie are the ones set in the future, which is to say today. Uh, You know, it's actually a very small part of the movie. It must be 15, 20 minutes. Oh, if that, yeah. Um, What visions of the future do the Bobs hand us in those scenes, though, Nathan? Honestly, I thought that the future section was going to last a lot longer than it did. You spend a lot more time in alternate versions of 1985 than you do in 2015. But as David already mentioned, 2015 is very clean. Uh, You have very few vehicles that roll. Everything is flying, whether it be the hoverboards, uh, which I was aware of for years and years before I actually saw the movie, whether it be flying cars, uh, everything in this society flies uh and one of the things about the i guess the trappings of this culture is that everything is instantaneously customizable uh so that you can change your sleeve lengths uh you know the the colors of various things so on and so forth simply by voice command uh there's a lot of robotics involved which is pretty characteristic of how the 1980s envisioned the future if you think of you know, the great cyberpunk novels of the 1980s. There was certainly some computerization going on, but there was also a lot of robotics more than what we think of now. Uh, And probably most amusingly is that they are nostalgic for the 80s the way that the 80s are nostalgic for the 50s. Right. (laughs) Uh, So you have a a 1980s bar in which your waiter is a robot, of course, because that's how the 80s imagine the future. Well, it's always Um, morning in America, even in the afternoon and noon. Yeah, <laughs> and as Michael just uh, stuttered and uh, stole my thunder, uh, you are waited on in this restaurant by variations on Max Headroom because apparently they thought that was going to be the important feature of the 1980s. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you know what's really great about it is once again there are you know gangs of violent criminals roaming the streets, nobody seems to care, and they are led, of course, by Griff Tannen, uh, who is, you know, the, uh, help me out here, is the, the grandson of Biff Tannen? Grandson, yeah. Okay, yeah. okay, I, I wanted to make sure that, like, Biff didn't just have children very old. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm not going to go back to the castration comment. Anyway, uh, <laughs> but, uh, you know, what? what's fun about the Griff character is, of course, that uh, it's the same actor that plays Biff Tannen. Uh, he still looks and sounds like Biff Tannen, but he speaks in this bizarre takeoff of uh, Clockwork Orange slang. Uh, and, you know, he, he's almost unintelligible for that reason. So, uh, he's David, really kind of I'm terrifying. Yeah. He is, although, although I will say this. I, I mean, when I saw Griff, I knew that it was Biff. When I saw Mad Dog in the third movie, which we'll talk about later, obviously, I had to go to IMDb to see if that was the same actor. He's Tom, Tom Wilson's pretty good in these movies. Oh yeah, 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 without a doubt, without a doubt. Christian, anyway, uh, David, C- Christian actor Tom Wilson. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> I, I've actually seen some of his stand-up bits where he talks about being recognized only as Biff in public. 
But <laughs> uh, David, what else about the future is there to say? I, I mean, you, you've already kind of mentioned this in the details of yours, but the the degree to which the future is simultaneously utopian and dystopian mm-hmm. without any kind of awareness that those things are blended. Mm-hmm. Right. You've got all of these beautiful, clean streets with, like you said, you know, anarchic clockwork orange gangs running around, <laughs> sa- savaging people, apparently without any particular repercussions until they break the windows of a public building. Mm-hmm. It's 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 bizarre. Um, and the, the degree to which the future again, yeah, future nostalgia about uh, about the 1980s. But also the degree to which... Which actually um, did turn out to be true, by the way. <laughs> well, I, but our nostalgia is mostly for the 90s right now. Well, I suppose that's true. You're, uh, the, the, young, the people who are in high school and starting college are nostalgic for the era in which their parents were in high school. So, you know, I think mm-hmm. that's the way it tends to work. Anyway. And then also, if you're a, a GOP candidate, you're nostalgic for the 80s. And the 50s. <laughs> <laughs> Anywho's, um, the oh other. Oh my gosh! I just realized that Donald Trump is kind of Biff Tannen in 1985A. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I should realize that because he's clearly modeled on him, isn't he? Biff, Biff's pleasure Uh-oh. palace is the Trump Tower. Oh man, this, this movie's got layers. And, and I can imagine he's... him saying to a reporter, "What are you looking at, butthead?" <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I can't even. Hey, remember. Scott. <laughs> oh, oh, the the uh, product placement. Um, just the ideas of what kinds of products are still going to be there, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you've got your, you've still got Black and Decker appliances in your kitchen, even though it's you know rehydrating your pizza. Um, Pepsi Perfect. Uh, Pepsi's uh, releasing Pepsi Perfect, by the way. Yeah, of course they are. Um, mm-hmm. You know, updated Nikes. Uh, you know what? It, what is it? Jaws nineteen or whatever it is. Directed yeah. by Max Spielberg, <laughs> which is which is probably some kind of not just a jokey reference to how long sequels can be spun out, but also to the fact that Leah Thompson was in Jaws three D. Yes. So you know it, it, the, those those sort of future product placements. I kept noticing the product placements in the first movie, mm-hmm. um, and then in the second movie, it's really really funny. Just imagining. It's like Blade Runner when, you know, somehow Atari is going to dominate the future somehow. And then it's just kind right. of sad. Or or in the sliced, sliced alone, uh, Judge Dredd, Taco Bell is the only restaurant left. <laughs> Your wife would be happy, David. Yeah, she would. <laughs> I, I think, you know, that, that would not be that, diff, that, that much of a problem for her. As long as they had chili cheese burritos again. I miss that. <laughs> a problem for everybody else. <laughs> um, you know, they're they're constantly looking into screens in the McFly home, right? I mean, when Marty McFly Jr. gets home, the first thing he does is have the TV turn on six different channels at once, right? And when they're when they're eating dinner, he's watching TV on his sunglasses. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, I think it's interesting that nothing works in their house. The 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 screen is out, and it won't be fixed because the 
for some reason the cable repairman called Marty a chicken. I don't I don't know because <laughs> in, in the second and third movies he suddenly has this personality quirk that if somebody calls him a chicken he just loses his mind. Yeah. Now now tell me, Michael, because I didn't go back and review the first one after I watched the sequels. That's not, not something that okay good because I I thought I'd completely forgotten that. The the and fan it, theory is that when he changed the the past he became more aggressive. <laughs> You know that this, this oh, is something I love that, fan theories. <laughs> this is something that he he developed over the course of time, and we just don't see it because we don't see him. We don't see him post uh, post return to the to eighty five in the first movie. Really, gotcha. It makes sense. It works, right? Well, except we do see him post nineteen eighty five. We don't He's see literally... we don't see a situation in which anybody calls him a chicken. No, that's true, but that's because like literally the next movie picks up two picks up where one leaves off. And three picks up where two leaves off. Yeah, well, that, that's what I'm saying. All of, all of this is supposed to be taking place in the course of a few days. Well, that, that's yeah. what I'm saying, though. You, because because you don't you don't see him after the timeline changes get called a chicken until he is in in, in right. the cafe eighties. That that would explain that. Yeah. Yeah, but the same body has been traveling through the timelines. But but the body has changed. He's a he's a he's it, he, uh, you know there there are theories about like the ripple effect. It takes it takes a little while. To change, I don't know. There's all sorts of. Okay, so 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 this movie turned you into an existentialist, apparently, and me into a science fiction person. So. <laughs> <sighs> so yeah. Well, uh, the future's cool, but to me, the most interesting thing about the second movie is the way it stacks these timelines on timelines on timelines, uh, from the Biff Tannen centric 1985A to the reshooting of the prom scene from the first film. Uh, David, can you explain to me why I find that so appealing? Well, I can't really get inside your head and explain it why you find it appealing. Um, I find it appealing for a couple of different reasons. Um, for one thing, it's a much grimmer movie, which mm-hmm. for, for whatever reason, that makes that makes it interesting to me. Uh, not in a way that the, the first movie wasn't, but it, 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 it adds interest. Um, mm-hmm. The... When you talk about the Biff Tannen centric 1985, um, the the bizarre way in which a a culture shaped by this one person's you know personality and influence ends up basically being a hellscape um, <laughs> yeah, for everybody but him. Yeah, is is I I, I don't know. That's... Well, for him too, but he's the devil, so he kind of likes it. Yeah, right. <laughs> I guess yeah, his three he... henchmen have it the best. Well, you know, better better for Biff Tannen to reign in his hell of 1985 <laughs> in Marty McFly's heaven 1985. So, listeners, if you have your bingo cards handy, that was John Milton. <laughs> <laughs> um, but one of one of the things that I think that the second movie deals with, I think, in a more honest way, is the complications of the first movie's premise that it just kind of glosses over. Um. You're just supposed to accept that everything's happy at the end in Back to the Future 1 um, when he comes back and his dad is cool, not a loser, and his mom is not a lush, and his, and his, you know, his siblings are not losers, and he has the black truck, and yet somehow he's still dating the same girl because he's still mm-hmm. in the same high school. He's not in like some private school or whatever, mm-hmm. and they still live in the same – anyway, whatever. Um, we'll the let truck all is hot, pass. though. Yeah, well, we'll we'll let all of that let all that pass. Point being, the end of Back to the Future one is deeply disturbing to me because 
Marty McFly comes back home to a house of strangers. Yeah. He doesn't know his father. He doesn't know his mother, and he doesn't know his siblings because these are not the people he grew up with. Now, we don't... He doesn't actually stay in that scenario, I think, long enough for that to sink in. Mm -hmm. But it seems to me that Back to the Future Part 2 is when they deal more honestly with that by imagining an even more extremely different 1985 in which it's very apparent this is not the mother he knows. Right. And also in which 2015, and and this just occurred to me, David, Mm -hmm. in which 2015 is a natural outgrowth of the consumer paradise that we see at the end of the first movie. Right. Imagine what 2015A looks like. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, true enough. One one thing you know for sure is that Biff is dead. Because because when old Biff comes back with the time machine after dropping off the uh, sports almanac in 1955, he disappears. Right. Mm-hmm. Or he starts to. It's a deleted scene. Right. Well, because because he erased the timeline in which he, he exists. Yeah. He. Yeah. Right. You know that 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 1985A Biff does not is not going to live to be. Wow. Sixty seven. And see, old, I, 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 obviously, old. you know, Michael's seen more DVD extras than I have. I think that's obvious by now. But I man, don't know would that, that have that's been a case. cool inclusion. I don't you know that that's necessarily. That doesn't make sense to me though. Because there can be multiple versions of the same person in the same timeline. Um, well, no, no, no. I, I think about it philosophically, David, because the slave Biff basically just shook off his chains, but in so doing, erased his own existence. But it's better to cease existing than it is to continue existing as a slave. Well, that's true. But I, I don't think it necessarily follows from that, that, that dystopia god Biff... Um, is necessarily going to die later. He's just not going to be Slave Biff of the future. Right, He's but going... the one who goes back into 55 is Slave Biff. Well, I know, I know. It makes, see, it makes, it makes sense that he disappears, but I don't think uh-huh. it follows that 1985 Biff will then also disappear. Here's the real question. How come 2015 doesn't change around Doc and Marty while they're still there? Well, that's true, too. <laughs> well, because because that 2015 is a, is in a different timeline. Remember, Doc, when Doc breaks out the blackboard, it's actually it's actually different timelines. In which case, so, there's no reason that Biff should stop existing. Right. Yeah, but again, if you why, take uh, it as a revenge fantasy and tr- stop trying to do fan theories, <laughs> it's really cool philosophically. <laughs> well, okay, okay. Would, would you just roll with it, please? <laughs> How well, come? This, how come we have to I'm do gonna... what you want to do when I'm the one who's hosting this episode? You've had this five episodes to do for. whatever you want to, to right. reign as the king of your own little kingdom. All right. So here's what I was going to come back to, and this connects to something you said, Nathan. So this should make you happy. Um, oh, come that, on. Back, that Back to the Future One theorizes and at least starts off by theorizing time travel as geographical. You can go to mm-hmm. this place and then you can come back. But yeah. the complication of Back to the Future 1 is that it's not just a geographical change because there's actually narrative continuity between the places that are causal. And that's the mm-hmm. complication. So when you get into Back to the Future 2, all of these stacking timelines, it's as if you're in a novel that is being, you're alive in a novel that is being constantly revised. Mm-hmm. So it's so it's a kind of uh, metafictional moment in which you have 
characters who are aware of the fact that the storylines of their lives can be revised and, mm -hmm. and that they have the power to transcend the storyline and redo critical moments, right? Um, in order, in order to get the story to turn out the way they want. It's as if, it's as if the characters in a choose your own adventure book become self-aware and can actually turn back to page 35 and make choice B. Right. So right. you're saying this movie invented Inception before Inception existed. I've not actually seen Inception, so I'll trust you on that one. Back to the Future 2 is better than Inception. <laughs> <laughs> well, and also what's weird about Back to the Future 2, and, and I'm going to go back to that prom scene that Michael referenced in the question, mm -hmm. is that Marty McFly becomes his own providential agent. It's true. Because yes. he is making things happen invisibly that have to happen in order for the first movie to happen. Well, it's like Harry Potter, Prisoner of Azkaban. That's actually only true because he, he changes the timeline by coming back in it. So he has to right. stop Biff's three idiot friends. They have names. I know one of them is, I think one of them is called Specs or something because he wears the stupid right. 3D glasses. Whatever. He only has to stop them from jumping him on the stage because they see him in his uh, spy gear outside right. the uh, auditorium, which they wouldn't have if he hadn't gone back. Does that make sense? Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, has anyone ever dealt with the fact that very clearly Marty McFly has actually been to the past once before the first movie? Because Goldie is mayor and Chuck Berry knows to play the electric car that way. I know Cracked has an article that says the Back to the Future is super racist because Marty does all this stuff that gets credited to black people. Oh, well, <laughs> I wasn't going to take it in that direction. What I was going to take was was just that in the first movie, it's... It's you're very me clearly meant to imply that this thing Marty McFly did led to Mayor Goldie having political ambitions, led to Chuck Berry's you know electric guitar revolution. But those are things that Marty McFly knew from his 1985. So maybe he was always had, fated to go back to 1955. Had he yes, had he been through there first before? Well, while we're talking about Chuck Berry, I have to mention that Marvin Berry, the actor who played him, Harry Waters Jr., is a professor at McAllister University in St. Paul. And uh, we went to a play there, which he directed. We didn't know that. Victoria saw him from across the room and said, that's Marvin Berry. <laughs> I didn't and it was. I, I told her to go up to him and said, uh, who are you looking at, spook? But she wouldn't. <laughs> she she didn't know she didn't think I'm that was so a good idea for didn't. some reason. <laughs> this is probably all for the best. That's a line from the movie, everybody. That's uh, just, yeah. I, I yeah, misquoted. That's... I said it right when I, I said it to her. Then I can't. It's not who you're looking at. It's something. It's something yeah. This don't concern you, Spook. That's, that's what it yes. Who you calling Spook, Peckerwood? See, I think he would have just turned around and said that. Yeah. In, 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 in my fantasy about Harry Waters Jr. Yeah, the play was terrible, by the way. Terrible. Just terrible. That was not the new sound we were looking for. <laughs> huh. Do you guys I... agree the second movie's the best? I, I think it is interesting in the way in ways that the other two are not. And I mean, it's for the reasons that David's laying out here that you actually see consequences of basically ambition right because i mean that mm -hmm. that's kind of the central allegory right i mean the the sports almanac is the macguffin it is the you know mm -hmm. that sacred object can destroy people's lives and yet marty still 
takes it into 1985 with him. Mm-hmm. Or does I, he? I, he no, to. he doesn't. He doesn't. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, but he wants to. Uh, yeah, it's, yes. It's, uh, it's definitely more interesting than the other two. Um, mm-hmm. It's also more disturbing than the other two. Because Biff Tannen is even more monstrous. He's been permitted to follow that track of development to the nth degree. And uh, it, it's it's horrifying. Well, there's something Dantean about it, right? I mean, Biff, Biff has become his sin in some way in 1985. Yeah. A, 1985, eh? In the way that the original 1985 George McFly had become his loserness. Yeah. <laughs> Every man deserves the face he has by 40. Ooh, that's the theme of the films. Anyway. I mean, I make every movie into an existentialist allegory, but maybe I'm not too far off here. I I don't know another movie quite like Back to the Future 2. And and if you think about how most sequels to hit movies work, they're usually just retreads. So, like, Home Alone 2 Mm -hmm. is Home Alone 1. They're the same movie. They have the same kind Oh, yeah, yeah. This is a (laughs) radically different movie than the first one. Oh, yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, and, and it's a movie that intentionally revisits the, the the first one, not to imitate it, but to subvert it. Right, right. All the like I said, the self referentiality of the second and third movies are important in some way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, but it also feels like the latest remake of Scooby Doo, where they've discovered that it's funny to bribe them with Scooby snacks, <laughs> and you know, so it happens at the same minute in every episode. <laughs> I, yeah. But I don't think it's cynical the way that is. Mm-hmm. I, I I think it's I think it's done out of a love for this universe. Okay, all right, and I and I will I will grant you that because you are the greater fan than I by far. Well, well and, you know I'm so yeah. incapable of being objective about these movies. <laughs> like I said, we watch them. Well, year, I mean, sometimes if, two if, or three times a year. If, if Dostoevsky teaches us anything, it's that objectivity is overrated. Yeah, I, I well, did just, that for the people playing bingo. Kirkenbertian <laughs> repetition is really what we're talking about here. Well, um, we, we probably need to move on because we're already at an hour here. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I love the third one. I, I will go to bat for it. I will certainly defend it. If you guys want to attack it, I'll tell you why I still think it's awesome. Um, but it is pretty self-evidently the weakest of the three movies. Mm-hmm. One interesting thing it does is it merges these two genres. It, there's a science fiction movie and a Western, and they kind of take place at the same time. Nathan, how effective is it at that merger? And uh, what do the new vistas say about both of those genres? Well, first of all, let me talk about why I think it's a weaker movie. First of all, uh, you get Doc, who is the wizard figure, basically forced into a romantic role, uh, which, you know, I mean, if... if I don't know. I, I, I guess it, it's like giving Obi-Wan Kenobi a girlfriend. Just don't do it, yeah. right? Um, and she's 30, 40 years younger than him. Uh, yeah, yeah, except you've got all that weird reverse aging stuff from 2015 working. But at any rate, <laughs> and, and of course, uh, of course, Clara, uh, for those of our listeners who watch Justified, uh, is one of the villains in the final season of that and is utterly horrifying. So it, it was fascinating to watch her and not be afraid of her in this movie. Also, she's uh, Mrs. Ted Danson. I didn't know that. Uh, but all of that is to say that, you know, you've got a... A, a weird plot line that really doesn't fit the character. You've got the slowest start of the three movies. I mean, I, I, I was looking at my watch during the first half hour of this one, thinking, okay, when is something going to happen? Um, but it's still an interesting movie. 
the merger with the Western is interesting because it's not a self-contained Western, of course, but because it is Back to the Future, it is an extended meditation on nostalgia. Uh, so one of the things you find out in Back to the Future 2, although I don't remember hearing it in the first one, but again, I'll defer to Michael on this one, is that uh, Doc is a sort of, he has a nostalgia for the Wild West and thinks that, you know, if he's ever going to use his time machine to go somewhere other than his own lifetime, he's going to use it to go back to the Wild West. Yeah, he never says that in the first movie. It's just the same. Okay, very good, very good. And so the Wild West... Uh, first of all, as we've already mentioned, is populated by the same cast of characters uh, from the first two movies, except uh, as their Wild West analogs. Uh, so, you know, uh, George and Lorraine McFly are Seamus, and I've forgotten her name, McFly, it's fresh from Ireland. It's actually not George. It's, it's Marty playing her. That's, that's, uh, that's, that's Michael J. Fox. Oh, yeah, I was aware of that. But oh. oh, you're, like, you're saying and, that's and, the analog. Yeah, 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 yeah. So the parent figures in 1885 are not George and Lorraine McFly, but they're Seamus and his wife McFly. What is her name? I can't think of it. I can't think of it either. Something also Irish. I can't remember. And then instead of the high school bully or clockwork anarchist, uh, Biff or Griff McFly, uh, you have Mad Dog McFly, the outlaw. Mad Dog Tannen. Son of a gun. See, now you got me all thrown off here. Uh, you know, you've got the uh, chief of air group from Top Gun, except instead of the uh, high school principal, he's the town deputy to the marshal. Uh, <laughs> so in other words, I mean, what you've got is, you know, this this same group, the this, this same cast, I'll put it that way, uh, but playing an analogous but related group of characters. Uh, so it kind of makes it fun in that respect, as we've already nodded to, uh, you still have the you know, Tannen falls in poop gag. You still got a poke in his mouth. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, it was the sequel. They had to turn up the juice. Um, (laughs) You still have the, uh, you know, the, the clock playing a prominent role. You still have, you know, all of these things going on. Right. So in that respect, uh, you know, whatever Western plot lines there are really kind of play second fiddle to the, fun of recognition as you see all of the elements from 1955 and both versions of 1985 and 2015 reappearing in actually all three versions of 1985 pardon me all reappearing in 1885 uh, now with that said uh, you've got a lot more overt violence because it is a western story after all uh, instead of people getting beaten up there's the constant threat of people being murdered, although, you know, I guess, spoiler alert, although it's a 26-year-old movie now, uh, there is an element of murder in Back to the Future 2. Um, but it's interesting mainly, for me anyway, mainly because of the fun of recognition. And and I do think, I'll still maintain this, that the self-referentiality gets a little bit silly but it's a silly kind of fun, to be sure. Yeah, I, w- I would agree. The, the the third one, I think the the real fun of that is the the echoes of the first two. Mm-hmm. Also, the echoes mm-hmm. of other westerns, because you at the yep. very least the the trio of cowboys who sit around the table in the saloon are classic western B western character actors. Yeah. Oh, okay. Okay. Probably most noticeably the great Pat Buttram, who has yeah. the, mm-hmm. you know the the kind of squeaky door voice. 
Yeah. <laughs> but also Harry Carey Jr. and I can't remember who the third guy is. Mm-hmm. But they're mm-hmm. all guys who are who are in a million B westerns. Right. I gotcha. David, well, what else is there to say about the West? Well, all I could hear was uh, was it the sh- uh, Sheriff of Nottingham? He did. Yeah, yeah. that's Pat Buttram. What a gang gave Robin Hood. <laughs> <laughs> Must have yeah. got that shirt off of a dead Chinese. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that was wonderful. Um, well, also the echoes um, from for a fistful of dollars. Yep, mm-hmm. yep. All so, the Clint Eastwood stuff. Yeah, all the Clint Eastwood stuff. But see, the thing is, that one had been there from the first movie, right? Because the twist at the end of, of Back to the Future, the first movie, is Doc Brown got a bulletproof, a bulletproof vest. vest. Yeah, well, it works on and and fistful of dollars or whichever one it is, a few dollars more appears in. Back to the Future too. Biff yeah. is watching it on the TV in his hot tub. Well, mm. Biff is watching uh, Fistful of Dollars, and he's watching that scene, and he actually comments on, ha, 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 it's so clever. Well, he's, he comments on the cleverness of, of the uh, of Clint Eastwood. Yeah, yeah. It's, so, you know, just so that you don't forget this, right? <laughs> um, how, do, do, you know, do you know how connected... Two and three were. They filmed it in- at the same time. Okay. Okay. So that was on purpose. Okay. Yeah. Oh, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. No, yeah. That was definitely that. That much in. I did know. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So you know, I I I think that was a pretty cool callback, even if it was on the nose, and I and and I kind of knew it was coming when he, you know, when he was in that room with the stove and the you know the potbelly stove, and he saw the door, and he looked at it, and I was like, oh yeah. <laughs> um, you know, so that, that was, you know, that, that, that was, that was pretty cool. Um, I do like the, the way that, uh, 1955 Doc Brown dresses him up like howdy doody or something <laughs> so, so that he'll blend in, um, which doesn't work at all. Anyway, I, I, I love, I love how 1955 is nostalgic for 1855 in ways mm-hmm. that are, commensurately wrong with the way 85 is nostalgic for 55 and the way 2015 is nostalgic for 85. You know? But also, also right, right? I mean, after the first 15, 20 minutes in the Wild West, the Wild West becomes kind of a fun place to be. Mm-hmm. I mean, kind of fun because you can't smell it. Yeah, the, well, the saloon, you know, the, the, the people <laughs> in the saloon become very friendly to Doc and Marty. Uh, they get yeah. to the dance and have a good time until Mad Dog tries to shoot him in the back. You know, and, it, it, it's not like 1885 is a horror show. No, that's true. Mm-hmm. That's true. I mean, you do get chased by bears, but apparently in this in this world, you can outrun bears. Well, the bear oh, stops yeah. and, and tries to eat his boots. Oh, that's true. <laughs> that's true. I mean, I would have. The by, by the way, Michael, I meant to ask you about this when I was watching the movie. What What's the reference on the 7-Eleven line? I, I, you, the, the, you have to use your hands. That's a, That's like a baby's toy? No, 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 no. When, when that, that's what McFly... the reference is. He, 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 he played Wild Gunman at the Seven Eleven. Remember, in at the cafe yeah. eighties, he yeah. he goes and plays Wild Gunman. Mm-hmm. The, the ah, video okay, game. okay, that, okay. That's why he says All right, see, I, I missed that reference. So thank you. Here's a cultural. Yeah. Here's a cultural point for you. The little boy who says, I can't remember if he says you have to use your hands or if it's the kid who says that's like a baby's toy is a infant Elijah Wood. <laughs> there you go. B- barely smaller than Elijah Wood is today as an adult. <laughs> it's twoo. Um they didn't have to do that much special effects to make him a hobbit. Um <laughs> Yeah. 
I'm trying to think. Um, you know, uh, little things that we just kind of take for granted. Um, you know, because they they didn't really have that many. You know, meet me at high noon or before or after breakfast for a showdown in the main street. You know, th- that kind of stuff happens in westerns in the movie, right? Right. Mm-hmm. They they you seem know, to go back to a movie western rather than to actual wild west. Yeah, yeah it, it is It is still a movie western, which is, I guess, kind of appropriate, right? Um, they, they never, ever actually leave movie reality. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Every time I watch that movie, I like it more and more. It has a reputation of being you know, a bad movie. And I, I really don't think it's a bad movie. It's just very different from the first two. Much lighter. I mean, it's, yeah. you, you said it's more violent, which it is, but the, the tone I think is much, much lighter. Oh well, yeah. Yeah. What I won't definitely, defend definitely is the, been too. What, what I, what I won't defend is the 20 minute stretch in the middle about doc and Clara's romance. That is boring. Yeah. What, what I won't defend is doc Brown's sudden, just embracing of willy-nilly reckless time travel, having spent three movies realizing the vast dangers in willy-nilly time traveling. You mean where he gets the uh, the giant train? Yeah, he gets his amazing, you know, steampunk, you know, trained <laughs> artist thing and just decides, whatever, I'll be a time lord, who cares? Yeah, just and... take the family around. Yeah, I mean, we're going to go to ancient Rome for vacation in our... For the further adventures of Doc Brown's Travel and Time Train, um, uh, you can watch the animated series, which I think comes out on DVD this week, <laughs> and which I have very, very fond memories of as a child. You Excellent. guys you guys were too old for that, I guess. Well, it, having spent three movies trying to establish that this is not, that time tourism is a deeply, deeply dangerous thing, not only on the macro scale, but also on the personal scale, because it's been personal the whole way through having established that for him to, in the end, just say, eh, we're just going to treat it like time tourism. Woohoo! Yeah. No, that's is, true. Is kind of a, you know, it's like at the end, Doc Brown turns from Oracle into Disney princess. Who's just like, woo, we make our dreams. I would like to and hear a biologist talk about the possible complications of a, man from the late 20th century procreating with a woman from the late 19th century. Surely <laughs> there's aging sort of... reversed in 2015. Yeah, but I'm not talking about his age. I'm talking about, like, they, they must be inoculated against different viruses and things like that. There mu- there, there, I would think there would be big problems with that. All I'm saying is he probably got some genetic modification going on. Oh, I see. Maybe he got bionic <laughs> circuits like Griff. Uh, <laughs> that explains the crazy eyes. Well, the third movie brings front and center a theme that had always lurked on the margins of these movies, the the friendship between Doc and Marty. I mean, the the real interesting relationship in the third movie is not Doc and Clara, it's Doc and Marty. Mm-hmm. Uh, what is this trilogy's view of friendship, David? It's really interesting because Doc and Marty's friendship, their actual friendship, is one that we don't see. Because mm-hmm. it all happens in nineteen eighty in the nineteen eighties before the first movie, um, you know. Yet again, it's 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 worth it to remember that the time spent in all three movies is actually the course of days. Mm-hmm. Right? We're we're talking about a couple of weeks in time, and the most time is, uh, if I remember correctly, is in the is in the third movie. Um, 
They're here for about four days. The, the most time's actually in the first movie. Oh, he, the goes, first he goes okay. on a Saturday and comes back on the next Saturday. Okay. Oh, okay. okay. All right. So we're talking. We're talking about a couple of weeks. So uh, I, I guess the first thing to note is that yes, if Doc Brown and Marty are friends, it's it's because of things that happened that we never ever saw, um, mm-hmm. except for 1955 Doc Brown, because 1955 Doc Brown has spent you know basically a week and a half a week once and then another part of a a week with you know uh with with marty in the first movie and then another you know probably another week or so because you know it takes time to travel to the mine and dig it out and all the rest of it um that that i i found i found interesting just in terms of its depiction of the flowering of a friendship because that's when we literally get to see the beginning and end of it mm-hmm. um in some in in some sense um because the you know it he he starts off you 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 see and maybe this is this is actually what ni- what the the 1980s friendship was like because we don't get the sense that anybody in the community liked Doc Brown. Yeah, Strickland Strickland calls him a you know dangerous supposed mm-hmm. Doc Brown. And in at least some timelines, Doc Brown gets in you know gets stuck in an asylum. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. But you know maybe what we're seeing in you know in 1955 is, is, is a recapitulation of the Doc Brown Marty friendship in which the, in which the young man seeks out the old recluse and essentially forces friendship upon him with his, you know, just, just continued resolve that I'm going to get to know this person. Yes, Marty has an agenda, but still it's, it it is an agenda of friendship. Um, Mm -hmm. They they develop a bond. Um, they can depend on each other. Both will both will risk their lives for each other. And unlike almost any other friendship that I know, this is a friendship that seems to be closer to peer to peer, but it's between you know an elderly man and a teenager. Usually, mm-hmm. we expect kind of Luke Skywalker, Obi Wan. You know, Frodo, Gandalf, Harry Potter, Dumbledore kinds of relationships. Doc's not mm. his mentor. Doc's not no. his mentor. And Marty mm. corrects him several times. Marty, like, yeah. saves the day. Yeah. Mm. So that, 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 that vision of, of the possibility of a kind of friendship almost of equals between people of vastly different ages of generations and experience, I, I think is really, really interesting. And... Mm. And I haven't thought long enough about it to, say, to, to have anything more to say, but maybe Nathan has. <laughs> uh, actually, before I do, I, I just want to make a side note that in the second movie, the uh, device by which you see the alterations in the future slash past is a newspaper headline that switches periodically. Right. Uh, and and, and I, I won't lie, I couldn't stop thinking about the Newsboys "God's Not Dead" video. Oh, for crying out loud! And, and <laughs> is that, that video is, is, is now dead? three times as funny as it was before, and it was pretty funny then. <laughs> nice. But anyway, back to this. Back to this. Um, I, I think David's notion of the friendship of equals, despite the fact that one of them is a, an unhinged mad scientist and the other one is a slacker teenager. 
is certainly worth noting. I mean, one of the things that you see over and over is that Marty has a grasp on social realities that Doc simply doesn't have. And in fact, it's not the teenager who is the puppy dog starstruck lover in the third film, but it is the old man. And, you know, it's, it's Michael J. Fox playing a teenager who has to, you know, have relationship talks with Doc. Uh, and, you know, I mean, it, it, it's amusing for that, for that reason. Uh, but I think David's right that it's also compelling for that reason. The other facet of this friendship, if you will, uh, has to do with one of the, you know, something that I, I certainly didn't notice when I saw it 30 years ago. Uh, and honestly, I hadn't read the right books to notice it until about eight years ago. Uh, but the fact of the matter is that in this universe, because of the nature of time travel in this universe, uh, every moment is futural. Mm. And so Doc and Marty, uh, one of the ways that they demonstrate their friendship, their willingness to make great risks and even lose their existence for each other, uh, is precisely by treating past events as future and saying, since I have the technology to make this event something that has yet to happen and therefore to alter it, I will risk great things for you so that you don't die violently. And it's it's one of those things philosophically where, oh gosh, and I just heard myself say something that someone wrote on Facebook. Uh, <laughs> but, oh, that was weird. Uh When they do this, it it struck me as odd here 30 years later because I thought, okay, if Doc lived in 1885, then he was going to die anyway. Why is it so urgent that we keep him from being dead by this means rather than by that means? Uh, And yet, you know, because I'm watching this as uh, conceptual fiction rather than realist fiction, I wrote along with it and it made for a pretty fun story. So, Michael, what would you add to all that mess? Yeah, I was going to say what you just said, which is all, all of these movies, maybe not the first one, but parts of the first one, uh, all of the, they, the second and the third one definitely happened because Doc loves Marty and Marty loves Doc. And, yeah. and in the second one, Doc brings Marty to 2015, not to save his life, but to keep his family from being ruined. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so, yeah, I, I have always been very moved by their friendship and the, the scene where they get their picture and the third one taken by the, the new clock tower. Mm-hmm. I find that very moving, and uh, the, the fact that Doc brought the brought a copy of that back to Marty in 1985. C B, I don't know the the one where he's the cowboy, <laughs> the one where the DeLorean is destroyed. Yes, right. yes, the one that involves Flea for reasons that I'm still not sure of. The one where Elizabeth Shue is his girlfriend. Anyway, yeah, <laughs> yeah. He uh, Claudia Wells who played played uh Jennifer in the first movie her her father was dying i think ah, and, and that's okay. why she that's why she uh backed out hmm. okay see i know all these things <laughs> think of the things i don't know because i know this these things gonna, this could have been a point oh one episode <laughs> just me talking <laughs> yes yeah we could have just let michael talk for like a very special three hour episode <laughs> my wife and i could have done it <laughs> That's awesome. Well, listeners, look for supplemental Christian Human Humanist Podcast one seventy one point zero one. Listeners who want to talk about this movie with me, you know, <laughs> I'm on Facebook. Ooh, one last little note: uh, yep. the the ways in which, and this is you see this most in 1985 Doc. 
the way 1985 Doc puts um, all of this effort into making sure that for decades a letter is held at the Western Union office to be delivered at this one particular place and time, and then mm-hmm. carefully conceals the DeLorean in a mine, along with detailed instructions about how to replicate a 1985 microchip with 1955, I guess, vacuum tubes and whatnot. <laughs> um, you know, that kind of friendship over time and th- the, the kind of thought that goes into... How can I how can I reach out across the the distance of decades to Marty without actually having a time machine? Um, that's just that's love. That's that's just nice. Well, and consider this: eighteen eighty five Doc would have no way of knowing whether it worked. Yeah, exactly. He would have he would have lived the rest of his life and died never knowing if Marty was going to be able to make it back to nineteen eighty five. And that was what he wanted. Yeah. I'm getting a little choked up. Yeah. Uh, Even more so than usual with these single text episodes, I've left a whole bunch of stuff out. Uh, As we close, I'd like to go around the horn and hear about other parts of these movies you guys find interesting or worthy of discussion. And Nathan, we'll start with you. First of all, single text might be high and this is three movies, but they they are one (laughs) storyline. One of the things that I, I really enjoyed, you know, being a, the 38-year-old version of myself rather than the 8-year-old version of myself uh, is just how self-consciously, I don't know if I want to say absurd or if I just want to say overdone, uh, you know, Christopher Lloyd and uh, and I've already lost the actor's name, Michael Biff Tannen's actor. Thomas F. Wilson. Yeah, Wilson. So Lloyd and Wilson, I mean, one of the things about these two is that they can strike a pose on camera and utter lines that are so overcooked that they are glorious. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and I will say that, you know, revisiting this 30 years later, uh, I actually realized this in a way that I didn't when I was eight years old, I don't think. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it, it, it adds a level of fun to the movie that, you know, Marty McFly, uh, played by Michael J. Fox is, you know, I, I I won't say that it's you know the, this grave acting style by any means, but he plays his character relatively straight, and he's always on screen with these people who are caricatures, and it's Huge. just just a, a ton of fun that way. Yeah. What's the no. best? Uh, what's the best Tom Wilson line? What are you looking at, butthead? Oh, I love I love Griff's. <laughs> uh, have you made a decision about tonight's opportunity? <laughs> <laughs> Him as Griff is just like that. That has to be the pinnacle of his of his yeah. uh, career as an actor. That that must have been <laughs> so much fun. He's so huge. He's even bigger than Biff. Even bigger than Mad Dog. When he when uh-huh. he pulls up on the uh, what's his uh, his pit bull put pit bull hoverboard and says yeah. batter up. <laughs> <laughs> like that. Yeah. just so ridiculous and if he had played it if he'd played it with the slightest bit of irony it would have fallen to pieces but yeah um, he, he plays it so huge and so completely straight mm-hmm. yeah and well, then i mean of- I, and and it's one of those things every successive great scott is more fun than the last and I, <laughs> I i have to tip my hat to christopher lloyd on that one yeah christopher lloyd's a national treasure yeah <laughs> They never stop swinging for the fence, and there is no scenery unchewed. And you're right. If they had ever held back, it would have played false. But they never do. Mm -hmm. And so it doesn't. 
<laughs> and and what's interesting is how different Biff seems to have been from who Tom Wilson really is. Oh yeah, Nathan yeah. mentioned his stand-up, which I think is completely available on YouTube. There's a lot of it available on YouTube anyway. And he, mm-hmm. you know, he's a very he's a clean comedian, and he's he's very uh, very charming. And he has a couple things where he he's kind of mock threatening, but he doesn't seem like a threatening person. He's a painter and a musician, and he wrote a essay about the sacraments. Mm-hmm. It's not the sort of thing you expect from Biff Tannen. Right, right. Now, now that I've said that about how fun it is, I, I will end with, I mean, it is a movie series, though, and we, we've addressed this somewhat as we've gone along, that is, you know, completely indwelt by a revenge fantasy. Uh, and, I mean, that, that that's something to be aware of. I, I don't think it discounts it. I mean, for pity's sake, I still teach Athenian tragedy. But uh, it's certainly worth noting that, you know, this is, to a large extent, a universe where you have allies and you have enemies, and there's not much room in this universe for anything resembling reconciliation. Mm-hmm. It also has strikingly little theological imagination, even for an 80s blockbuster. Yeah, mm-hmm. true enough, true enough. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there is no Even though, like life. I said, I mean, I, I really do think that this movie, along with Bill and Ted and Time Bandits, influenced the way that I later on in the mid to late 90s studied theology. So go go work on that one. David, what do you got? Well, just, to, just to kind of, you know, tack onto that one. There is no timeline, and I kept expecting for this to happen. I don't know why, but I kind of wanted it. There is no timeline in which there is a, in, in which there is a redeemed tannin. Mm-hmm. It, it, it's, 1985 it's like, Tannen, when he, when he comes back from 55, but, uh, redeemed is maybe a stronger word, but he's not a bully anymore. He's not a bully, but he's not a man, right? And also he, he grows up he, to be 2015 Tannen, who yeah, erases himself for re- revenge. And, well, right. and he, does, he, does, uh, he does clearly lie to George about doing mm-hmm. a double coat, so he's crooked. Yeah, you're right. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and, and he basically all he does is 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 switch places with George McFly, mm-hmm. and become that you know hollow ca- hollow cowardly, you know, laughing because he's terrified person that George was in 1955. Um, other things worthy of discussion. Women don't fare well in these films. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just I'm just gonna say there's probably there's I don't know that there's any woman who has a major named role in these films that that Biff, that some Tannen or other doesn't assault in one way or another. Linda, Marty's Marty's doofy sister. Oh well, okay, fair enough. Linda, Linda, there's one. Lin- <laughs> <laughs> there's one. You know, if you're Leah Thompson, you just get it's just it's just terrible. All bets are off. It doesn't matter what timeline you're in. You're you're you know. Uh, I don't think Maggie gets anything from Mad Dog. I don't think they even have a scene together. No, that's true. That's true. May, I, I, I'm exaggerating. Nonetheless, um, that was really disturbing to me watching it as an adult. I don't know that I would have paid attention to it in the same way. I would have said, "Hey, hitting girls is not nice." But I don't think I would have paid attention to it the same way if I'd watched it when they when they came out. But now there's something that's really disturbing about it that's more monstrous than the bullying um, to you know to George or to Marty, and you know that I I, I 
I don't think the movie ever did that justice. Well, the the women, in a broader sense, don't really exist except to push the plot line forward for the men. Right. Yeah. I, I mean, it, it is really Doc and Doc and Marty's movie, and you know, Marty's girlfriend kind of doesn't matter. Mm-mm. I know she has to be in all three movies, but she doesn't really matter. We we don't get the we don't get a sense of why she is this love of his life, you know, why why she is the mythological woman for him. Yeah. Right. Yeah, you, know, you know, though, Leah Thompson as 1955 Lorraine in the first movie has a personality. You know, she she is yeah. a she is a round character, to use the freshman comp terms. No, that's <laughs> true. Yeah. And and she's she's interesting. Um yeah. She's she's interesting. George is interesting. And for for whatever reason, I think their loser selves are in some ways more interesting and ironically dynamic than their 1985 proactive selves. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm ha- I'm happy that they're happier, but I find them less interesting. And I don't I don't I I don't know what I want this movie to be, but you know, I, I'm just trying to think about the beginnings that are that are presented as sad and the endings that are presented as happy. And why is it that I actually kind of like 1955 George more in terms of human sympathy than I do 1985 George. Cause 1985 George don't need your sympathy. Who, who cares? I mean, he's, yeah, I know. he's the top of the world. So you're not, I don't he, think you're supposed to sympathize with him. He's got all yeah, the toys. That's true. But he ends up becoming someone that I, I don't know. Just, yeah, I don't know. He even stops slicking his hair back. Yeah. Also, he's Crispin Glover. Can can we just kind of say that dude's weird and let that just just let that? <laughs> Do you know why Crispin Glover is replaced in the second movie? Because um, it's not Crispin Glover as George McFly in the second movie. That's why he's upside down. Okay. the The scenes from 1955 that he's in are like re-scenes from the first movie. They they've, you know, mm-hmm. they've just used him. He uh, asked for as much money as Michael J. Fox made. <laughs> he thought Wait. he deserved the same salary as Michael J. Fox for his role. So they, wow. just, they just canned him. <laughs> that makes sense. Anyway. And, you know, what has he done since? He was the bad guy in Charlie's Angels 2, and he was in that rap movie. <laughs> yeah. And he made it... an album. <laughs> is, is is he the Mark Hamill of the, of the, of the franchise? Well, people like Mark Hamill. Well, yeah, that's true, true enough. Too. Uh, one one other thing I wanted to talk about, and I'll try to do so quickly. It, th- this movie has a very the series has a very interesting view of freedom. To mm. me, the 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 climax of the third movie is Dar the Denouement. I suppose Doc Doc comes up and and says the future isn't written yet; it's yours to change. So you you get the sense that human beings are ultimately free, and yet the casting of the movie undermines that because mm-hmm. all the uh, all the characters are played by the same people and and so there's some there's this weird sense of biological determinism and mm-hmm. even the freedom offered to you is freedom for a couple of key moments in your life and at that point once you make those decisions once you decide whether to punch the bully or not once you get hit by the car or you don't um once you get the sports almanac or you don't although at least that one makes sense Th- these key moments are what uh what completely determine the rest of your life Mm-hmm. So it's it's a really strange view of freedom. 
Two two recommendations really quick for people who like these movies. There is a video game, not the terrible video games from the 80s. Those are awful. There is a video <laughs> game that came out about five years ago. I have it for PlayStation 3. I think it's on the PC and a couple other platforms as well. And they've just released it for the, the fourth generation PlayStations and the uh, consoles that go along with them. Uh, that video game is done by people who love these movies as much as I do, and they really are continuations of the movies. Hmm. Um, so I would I would highly recommend that if you like the if you like the uh, if if you if you love the movies, let's say they're also point and click adventure games, so you don't have to be good at video games to play them. Cool. Uh, and the other thing I would recommend is the card game, the Back to the Future card game, where you go back and change. Uh, various events in order to uh, to make the future look like you want it to based on who your character is. That's hmm. a lot of fun oh. and mean. I wonder if you could. <laughs> I wonder if you could come up with some kind of alternate set of rules for the game of life. <laughs> the Back to the Future game of life. Yeah, where you know you could periodically just sort of like start over again and then jack up other people's choices. <laughs> anyway, sorry. Thanks for listening to this incredibly <laughs> long episode. On uh, we are about as long as the first movie, I believe. Maybe five, ten minutes shorter. <laughs> uh, do you want to talk for ten more minutes just so we can get it? No. Just we can just quote. I'm good, lines. man. I'm good. I could just quote <laughs> lines. Uh, which one of you is hosting next week? David. Am what's I? on the What's on the slate for us next week, David? Ah, you haven't the slightest idea. <laughs> I I think I had an idea, but now I can't remember. We're hey, talk- David, I have an idea. Have you ever thought about doing an episode on Catholic institutions Ed- of higher learning? Oh, yeah, 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 Catholic <laughs> education. Yes, 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 great. Yeah, so we're going to talk about... You see, um, David, I'm actually from a uh, future time in which I've listened to that episode. It's really quite good. It was, it was so bad that you came back to try to change it. <laughs> Awesome, awesome. Yes, so that. So you've made you've made a decision about next week's opportunity, then, David. <laughs> Would you yeah. say that? Yeah, yeah. I, 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 I don't know. I don't know if that's the. Right. Yeah. You need to ask your father. I need to ask my father. Yeah. What's wrong, David? You got no scrote. God. Oh. <laughs> uh, hey. All right. Uh, well, yeah, that, let's end. Let's end it. <laughs> The, uh, the Christian Humanist Podcast is a production of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic. Our intern is Amberly Copeland, not to be confused with Amberly Evans, who apparently edited last week's episode. For Nathan Gilmore and David Grubbs, this is Michael Farmer saying, let your sins be strong and let your faith be stronger.